Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 7725. Actually, it's all about disappearances for the week of June 20th, 1977. Welcome back to Retrogram, a podcast that plunges precipitously into the past, plucks popular entertainment out of probable obscurity, if it's of the sci-fi, superhero, horror, spy-fi, or fantasy sort, and then propels these pieces of the past into your present with a fresh review, occasionally picking them apart to perceive the permanence of their place in the pop culture pantheon. We've once again landed in the summer of 1977, because there are two really interesting shows that landed not just in the same week, but on the same calendar day, just on opposite sides of the Atlantic. And boy, does one of these pieces of television cast a long shadow through history. Is that a good thing? Pop some popcorn, prop up your feet, and prepare to join me in casting some pods into the past. Science Report Alternative 3 aired Monday, June 20th, 1977 on Anglia TV. The host of Science Report welcomes us to another show after several interview clips involving missing scientists and researchers. He tells us that this show originally started out pursuing the disappearances and then after a lot of stonewalling by government officials and others, further inquiry led somewhere else entirely. The story started out as a report on the brain drain of British scientists leaving the country to do their work overseas where they could have access to more facilities and funding, a trend that's been growing since 1975. But the mystery that arose was that either these scientists went completely off the radar after leaving the UK, in many cases checking in for a flight at Heathrow Airport is the last trace of their existence. There's also the mystery of a radio astronomer who, after mailing a two-inch video tape to a contact in the media for safekeeping, died in a mysterious car accident. The videotape seems to contain nothing extraordinary. The next odd piece of the story came when an American, claiming to have met the deceased radio astronomer during a visit to NASA's Johnson Space Center, contacted reporter Colin Benson. Benson, covered by a hidden camera and wearing a wireless microphone, met his contact in London who gave Benson an address and then invited him to bring a camera crew and witnesses a day later. But when they showed up to meet him, he seemed unwell at first and then flew into a rage when Benson and his crew didn't immediately leave. 
Our host is back, suddenly switching to a series of film clips of droughts in Australia, Africa, and India, a seemingly unprecedented series of volcanic eruptions in Central America, earthquakes in Italy, China, and Yugoslavia. A professor at Cambridge takes the opportunity in an interview to reiterate his theory that a greenhouse effect is taking hold due to human-made pollution. It's a theory that hasn't gotten a lot of support until now, and the professor mentions that the last time he presented his findings to NASA, he overheard discussions of three alternatives to solve the problem of Earth's changing climate, two of which he considered crazy. The third one, not so much, although he will not say on camera what alternative three was. Astronaut Bob Groden, a retired Apollo astronaut, is the next topic, a man who returned from space forever changed, but found it difficult to readjust to life on Earth. He's considered unstable, and his relationships and career have crumbled after the end of his mission. A clip of a recorded satellite interview with Groden is shown, and our host brings up the rumor that the men who went to the moon saw things that they've never discussed publicly. Groden tenses up and asks his interviewer, What are you trying to do to me? Are you trying to screw me? And then he mentions the name of the dead radio astronomer, and then the satellite transmission is cut. After this incident, reporter Colin Benson was once again dispatched to America to pose as another professor with a home movie camera to try to track down Bob Groden, who he finds hiding away in a cabin. After Groden downed a few beers and moved on to bourbon, he mentioned the radio astronomer's tape, which is apparently scrambled and can't be decoded by normal broadcast equipment, and he even recognizes a photo of Harry, the American who went to London to meet Benson earlier. Once Bob Groden reaches the bottom of the bottle of bourbon, he's feeling more talkative. He says the later Apollo missions were a smokescreen for PR purposes. He says that during his moonwalk, he saw evidence of a permanent manned presence on the moon, something far beyond the technology of Apollo, which was just there to keep the public and the press occupied. A political science professor who keeps an eye on both the American and Soviet space programs is interviewed, particularly about whether the recent Apollo-Soyuz program was an isolated incident, and he speculates that it doesn't seem likely that all that effort would be poured into what seemed like a one-off mission. A spaceflight expert says that flight beyond the Earth will have to begin from space, a moon base, for example. He says the technology already exists, but since the Apollo-Soyuz flight, the American space program has all but ceased to exist. Then another expert actually agrees to go on the record about Alternative 3, revealing it to be an idea that started virtually as science fiction, an attempt to move the best and brightest of the human race to colonize another world. But not just colonizing it to colonize it, but to get them off the Earth and preserve something of humanity while there is still time. Who would he send? The scientists, the engineers, the smartest, a few people from the world of the arts. No list of people would ever be complete enough, but they could set up shop on the moon or on Mars and start breeding. That cross-section of healthy, bright young people perfectly describes the people who have gone missing, and not just from Britain, but from other countries, too. Where are they going? The experts begin to speculate about the rumored moon base as a mere stepping stone to a colony on the planet Mars. And to kick up enough gases trapped in the Martian soil to thicken its atmosphere, a rocket may have carried a nuke to detonate on the Martian surface as far back as 1961. A call is received from the British woman who is sharing an apartment with Harry, the American who seemed so enthusiastic at first to talk to Science Report. Colin Benson and his camera crew rush to meet her, and she hands over a circuit board and a message. Running the radio astronomer's videotape through this circuit will decode it, and she begs them to help her go into hiding. 
The tape is decoded, showing footage from a vehicle flying over what looks like the surface of Mars, showing conditions at least somewhat close to desert conditions on Earth, with a voice declaring it to be May 22, 1962, and signs of something moving beneath the Martian surface. Our host returns to sum it all up. Alternative 3, he believes, is real, and the major governments of the world need to be cornered and asked what they know about what's really going on there. Then the date of the film's completion is flashed up on the screen, April 1st, 1977. The credits roll, complete with the names of actors, playing the part of every person seen in the show, except for our host, Tim Brenton, who played himself. Thanks for watching Science Report. By the way, Anglia TV never had a series called Science Report. The end! Okay, so let me cut to the chase here. This is 2021. This was shown in 1977. There are still, to this day, people who believe this was totally real, and that everything shown in it was real, and you cannot convince them otherwise. No joke. But that's now. What about then? Okay, I'm going to quote to you from the Wikipedia article on Science Report Alternative 3. Within minutes of the program ending, Anglia Television was flooded with telephone calls demanding more information. Callers were told the program was a hoax. The Times on June 21st reported independent television companies last night received hundreds of protest calls after an Anglia program, Alternative 3, gave alarming facts about the changes in Earth's atmosphere. It was a hoax originally intended for April 1st. It's also pointed out that several of the characters in the program were played by well-known actors. In his 2003 book, A Culture of Conspiracy, Apocalyptic Visions in Contemporary America, author Michael Barkin writes, Alternative 3 was clearly a hoax, and not only because it was intended for broadcast on April Fool's Day. The interviews with supposed scientists, astronauts, and others were far too dramatically polished to have been spontaneous, and in any case, the episode's closing credits named the actors who took the roles of interviewees and correspondents. Though artfully produced, the show's counterfeit documentary style could scarcely have been expected to fool many. As an Anglia TV spokesman put it, we felt viewers would be fairly sophisticated about it. Okay, now, here's where it gets complicated. Sphere Books, a UK publisher who also held the rights for novelizations of Blake's seven episodes of all things, published a book adaptation by Leslie Watkins in 1978 of Alternative 3. That is primarily responsible for bringing the Alternative 3 concept to our shores. The TV movie was only shown in the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. But there's a twist here. Watkins made the creative decision to replace Bob Groden with Buzz Aldrin in the book adaptation. It is well known by now that Buzz did go through a period of battling alcoholism in the 70s, which lets you find and replace Groden for Aldrin very neatly and lends the whole thing more verisimilitude than maybe it needed. Flash forward to the 21st century when Buzz is cold-cocking, conspiracy-minded, ambush journalists, and I use the word journalist very loosely there, for jumping out of the woodwork at his public speaking appearances to ask him if the moon landing was a hoax or a part of some other conspiracy. Yeah, Alternative 3 has gained some infamy. There are a few nutjobs out there, as well as some books that have no connection to the TV version, 
claiming very strenuously that it was all real all along. Boy. The TV script was written by David Ambrose. We've talked about David in the context of his adapting classic short stories for Anglia's 1973 series, Orson Welles' Great Mysteries. So here's Ambrose, still at Anglia, still writing perfectly fictional stories for the telly, having a bit of fun. He would go on to write movies such as The Final Countdown, Daryl, and Amityville 3D, and he has, since the turn of the century, settled into being a novelist. David also wrote an unproduced episode of the aborted Star Trek TV revival, commonly referred to as Star Trek Phase 2, titled Deadlock. And guess what? It's all conspiratorially minded, positing a kind of MK Ultra style secret experiment going on within Starfleet. Very 70s, but not very Star Trek. Tim Brenton appeared as himself. Tim Brenton worked as an announcer and as a newscaster for both BBC and ITV over the course of his storied career. In fact, he's one of those hallowed few faces and voices in British broadcasting who seem to move effortlessly between the two giant rivals in the broadcast industry there, until he got out of broadcast in the early 1970s and went into politics. This led to two terms in office as an MP from 1979 through 87 as a member of the Conservative Party, from 2003 until his death, he was a member of the UKIP, the UK Independent Party. We lost Tim in 2009 to Alzheimer's disease. Now, the first time I ran through the end credits after watching this, I jotted down just the names of actors who were instantly familiar to me. An American, born only a few years before this movie aired, who only knew these actors from prominent roles in other British sci-fi that I've watched in the years since. If these names and faces stood out to me, surely they stood out to savvy British viewers who were watching Alternative 3 at the time it aired, such as Shane Rimmer as Bob Groden. Shane Rimmer was born in Canada, and he was frequently in demand in the UK from the moment he arrived in the late 50s. Here was someone who didn't have to try to put on a North American accent, whatever that means, because I know I don't sound Canadian, but I do know where to find a rhotic R most days. Shane already had this accent, so he found himself voicing American characters for Jerry Anderson's early Supermarionation series. Shane was the voice of Scott Tracy in Thunderbirds, and voiced numerous characters in further Anderson shows, such as Captain Scarlet in The Misterons, Joe 90, and you could even see him and not just hear him in his appearances in UFO and Space 1999. He also appeared in Doctor Who, and he was a frequent flyer in shows and movies being made in England but bankrolled by American studios. He shows up, both credited and otherwise, in several James Bond movies, for example, Superman 1, 2, and 3, and yes, he was even in that Star Wars flick that people were watching in the summer of 77, although it wouldn't hit the British theaters until a couple of months after the premiere of Alternative 3. Shane was even in Batman Begins, he was also the star of his own live-action series pilot, Jerry Anderson's Space Police, in 1986, though the series that pilot was trying to pitch underwent significant retooling before reappearing in the 90s as Space Precinct, starring Ted Shackelford instead of Shane Rimmer. We lost Shane Rimmer in 2019, shortly after his most recent voice work in the animated series The Amazing Adventures of Gumball had gone out. 
In his autobiography, From Thunderbirds to Pterodactyls, Shane Rimmer said that he and his fellow Jerry Anderson voice regular Ed Bishop, an American who had moved to the UK at roughly the same time that Shane did, were rent-a-yanks who were seldom out of work because they could do authentic American accents. Okay, as the most frequently recurring uh, professor, you know, expert in Alternative 3, it's Richard Marner from Allo Allo. How could anyone be taken in by this? Because that was not an unrecognizable face. Now, Patsy Trench also seemed familiar. She plays the uh, the first scientist who goes missing. Sure enough, I had already seen her in the BBC series Moonbase 3, which predated Alternative 3. She was also in an Australian sci-fi series filmed in 1968 and 69, but not broadcast until 1970, called Phoenix 5, which was shown both in Australia and in the UK. One thing that she and Shane Rimmer share in common is that they both turned their hand to writing as well as acting. However, I think she turned her hand to writing a lot sooner than he did. Alternative 3 is her final acting credit, according to IMDb. Alec Linstead appeared as Professor Broadbent. Alec Linstead's first chronological screen credit was in the 1971 Doctor Who story, The Demons, where he played Unit's own Sergeant Osgood. Of course, plenty of fan speculation and then print fiction identified Sergeant Osgood as the father of Osgood, the scientific advisor for Unit in modern-day Doctor Who. He reappeared in Tom Baker's first Doctor Who story, the four-part Robot, where he was the scheming Mr. Jellicoe, and then had a tiny part in an episode ten years later, being the still-living head of a human being converted into a Dalek in 1985's Revelation of the Daleks, starring Colin Baker. Genre-wise, he has also appeared in The Tripods and in an episode of Lex, which you have to remember was an international co-production. You may also have seen him in Riley Ace of Spies, Lovejoy, and McLibel. The music for Alternative 3 was composed by Brian Eno? Holy cow! Now, furthermore, there has been something of a soundtrack release. Some selections from Science Report Alternative 3 are included on the album Music for Films, released by Eno in 1978. Three minutes worth of them, in fact. The space nerd in me chuckled at some of the montages of very well-worn NASA film, because they're cutting back and forth between Saturn 1B launches and Saturn 5 launches. Now, you need a Saturn V if you are sending a command service module and a landing module to the moon. You need a Saturn V if you're launching the Skylab space station. You only need a Saturn 1B if you're just lofting a command and service module to Skylab or to the Apollo-Soyuz mission. Okay, now let's talk about the Apollo-Soyuz mission's mention in Alternative 3. This was something that I just kind of buried my face in my hands. The reason the American space program kind of went dormant after Apollo-Soyuz was that all resources were now being directed toward the space shuttle, which wouldn't launch until 1981. So you had this six-year gap in American crewed spaceflight. We were not sending people for a long time. We were sending robots. It just kind of galls me that this was turned into part of the conspiracy, part of the evidence of the conspiracy for this movie's purposes. So let's sum it up really quick. As an April Fool's joke... 
a regional British broadcaster puts on a special episode of a science series that existed neither before nor after that episode, positing that the Earth is doomed and the best and brightest are leaving great unwashed masses to start a new human colony on Mars because, hey, to heck with you great unwashed masses. Take a bath or something. Wait a minute, is this where Elon Musk gets his ideas? <clears throat> anyway, a book adaptation gets published nine months later. After the broadcast was delayed from April Fool's Day to the middle of June already. A book adaptation gets published that takes steps to make it seem even more plausible, and then it becomes an almost mainstream conspiracy theory. And keep in mind, any decade that brought you Watergate and the Pentagon Papers kind of brings you a society primed to buy into this sort of thing. And now the idea won't go away. The only part that goes away is the fact that it was conceived as an April Fool's joke that would run once on a regional British broadcaster whose audience would have immediately recognized, surely, they immediately recognized the actors playing the various reporters and interview subjects involved. Weep not just for our critical thinking skills now, but for the critical thinking skills of the past generation or two. As awesome as it is that I have the internet to put a podcast out there about old TV shows like I do, I really wonder why the collateral damage cost of the internet existing has to be that it also amplifies things like conspiracy theories and disinformation intentionally constructed to do harm. That's a lot to unpack from a 45-year-old TV special that was really meant to be seen just the once as a joke. As a palate cleanser, here's a word from our sponsor. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to such sites as fangirlish.com and popcultureretrorama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of thelogbook.com and its podcasts. Man from Atlantis 4, The Disappearances, aired Monday, June 20th, 1977, on NBC. The story so far. He was found washed ashore, covered in seaweed, but not dead. In fact, he didn't start to show signs of life until he was taken back to the water. He's Mark Harris, the name given to him by the people who found him, and though his memory seems a bit hazy on the matter, he might just be the last survivor of the lost continent of Atlantis. When he finds himself among humans, he finds helpful ones, such as Dr. Elizabeth Merrill, the researcher for the Foundation for Oceanic Research, who first studied him and realized he needed to be taken back to sea, and C.W. Crawford, the Foundation's uptight but sympathetic director. 
Then Mark finds humans who don't exactly leave him with a good feeling about humans, whether they're military commanders who want to find out more about his ability to stay underwater for long periods of time for use in espionage and warfare, or actual villains such as the scheming maniacal Mr. Schubert. Mark eventually joins the Foundation, staying among the humans whose values he shares, and trying to teach them how to live in closer harmony with nature, perhaps like his people might have, if only he can remember. And in the meantime, he's helping them solve their problems on land and sea. The Disappearances It's just another day at the Foundation, aboard the submarine Cetacean, and Mark's back from a field trip to the ocean floor where he successfully identified a number of mineral deposits. Though he's curious as to why such a task would be needed at all, I mean, don't these minerals exist on dry land? Well, sure, but since humanity is chewing through those resources like crazy already, we just thought we'd see what's waiting to be collected on the ocean floor. Mark asks what happens when the deposits on the seafloor are gone, and mm, no one's got an answer. Awkward silence. Hey, saved by the bell. The telephone, that is. A wealthy benefactor who is strongly considering donating a ship to the Foundation wants to meet Dr. Elizabeth Merrill tomorrow. Cut to the wealthy benefactor welcoming his secretary, Jane, just arrived by seaplane. He's here to give her a ride into town. Jane seems like she'd just as soon scrape him off the sole of her shoes. He asks how her last trip to see Dr. Smith went. Fine. Fine. Oh, and he mentions that a new associate will be joining Dr. Smith soon, a Dr. Elizabeth Merrill. They arrive at the Foundation for a tour, but Jane would rather stay in the waiting room, and then wander off by herself, finding the lab where Mark Harris is, sitting in a tank, communicating with some fish. It's a really awkward conversation, and you'd almost think Jane has a thing for Mark. And maybe there's some mutual interest there? Anyway, the tour that Jane didn't want to go on loops back to the lab, and eh, the visit's over. The final decision will be delivered tomorrow about the ship, and Elizabeth is to meet the wealthy benefactor at the port, which seems like a promising enough sign. Cut to tomorrow, and Mark is vaguely worried as Elizabeth drives him to the port. Nothing he can really put a finger on, but he's concerned. Elizabeth drops him off at an indoor amusement park near the port. He can soak up some human experience there, and maybe not be awkward around the wealthy benefactor or his secretary. It's a fascinating place full of merry-go-rounds and pinball machines and funhouse mirrors. It's all amusing enough. Mark just can't really figure out what it's for or why people spend so much time there. Elizabeth, in the meantime, is sitting in her parked car, waiting for the wealthy benefactor. He's nowhere to be seen, but there are plenty of dudes around who seem to be keeping an eye on her. Then he pops up and kind of scares her to tell her it's time to go look at the ship. Elizabeth is getting a bit nervous, especially when the dudes who were just hanging around watching her drive off some guys who are showing up at the pier to do some fishing, almost like they don't want any witnesses. The wealthy benefactor is now thoroughly creepy, telling Elizabeth she's coming with him whether she likes it or not. There's a burst of seabird chatter, and somehow Mark knows something is wrong. He takes off for the pier at a dead run. He shows up just in time to see a gagged Elizabeth being put aboard a boat against her will. When he tries to save her, the dudes, obviously in the employ of the wealthy benefactor, knock Mark out and lock him in a shed. When he comes to, he's trapped, and the boat, with Elizabeth aboard, is long gone. She's taken to another port and 
put aboard that seaplane. Jane's there during all of this, and she seems increasingly at unease with what's going on, with what she is a part of, especially when Elizabeth says that Mark will die if he's left in the shed overnight. And sure enough, still locked in the shed, Mark's not doing too great. He's turning red, and his labored breathing attracts the attention of a sea lion. Miller and C.W. from the Foundation show up searching for Elizabeth, finding her abandoned car, and they find Mark in the shed, freeing him so he can go soak up some water and recover enough to help them describe Elizabeth's kidnapping to the police and the FBI. It turns out that the wealthy benefactor has several aliases and has been linked to the kidnappings of other scientists. But that's where the trail ends in each case. The scientists that have been lured into their kidnappings haven't been seen again. But some of the disjointed hints that the FBI can't make sense of convince Mark that he knows where Elizabeth has been taken. Elizabeth is taken to an island where the only sign of human civilization is a thatch hut. A thatch hut concealing an elevator which leads to a very well-equipped underground laboratory. Here Elizabeth is greeted by Dr. Mary Smith. She needs a marine biologist and she's sure that Elizabeth will change her tune on resisting any order she's given. One of the first things she's told to do is get ready to visit a spa. Somewhere between the red lighting and the fountains and tubs of the spa, Elizabeth does indeed drop all resistance to what's happened to her. She's being briefed by Dr. Smith when Dr. Smith is alerted to the presence of a nearby submarine. The closest anyone has ever come to Dr. Smith's secret underground lair, <clears throat> I mean headquarters. Oh, that's probably the cetacean, Elizabeth volunteers happily. They've come looking for me. She seems cheerful about it and not very worried. But don't worry, Dr. Smith is going to greet the cetacean with a torpedo. Though Mark is able to detach the torpedo from the cetacean's hull before Dr. Smith detonates it remotely, the trouble's not over yet. Mark and Miller go to the island, find the hut, find the secret door, and their arrival has been expected. Miller is taken immediately to Dr. Smith's mind-controlled spa, where, just like Elizabeth, his brain is literally washed on the spot. Mark detects what's in the water, he can feel it's there, and he plays along, but he's not actually affected. Later that evening, Miller and Elizabeth are giving a piano and vocal recital, which seems a little out of character, with everyone present, and Mark takes this opportunity to slip out and go exploring Dr. Smith's base. It turns out she knows he's snooping around. She's waiting for him when he finds the rocket. Dr. Smith calls it her ark. It'll send the best and brightest, the people she's kidnapping and brainwashing to give the human race a new planet where they can start again. That sounds familiar. Mark even knows what planet she's most likely aiming for. He still plays along as if he's affected by what's in the water, but the truth is he knows how to counteract what's in the water. There's a mineral he'll need to find on the seafloor near the island, and he convinces Jane to help him slip out and find it. She winds up in trouble. She is, after all, reluctant to go along with her sister's plans. Yes, Jane is Dr. Mary Smith's sister. Mark slips back into the complex, puts those pesky undersea minerals in the water supply, and suddenly the spa doesn't work. If anything, being in the spa hastens everyone coming back to their senses, and Dr. Mary Smith has a revolt on her hands. She makes her escape to the rocket room with Mark hot on her heels. She's leaving. She plans to destroy the island in the wake of her rocket. She offers Mark a choice. If he'll come with her to, I guess, start a new hybrid species on another planet? She'll spare everyone's lives. 
As it is, she spares everyone's lives and leaves alone. So, uh, have fun in the Epsilon Eridon system? What was it all for? Only Mark seems to be concerned that a woman just launched herself aboard a rocket to die in space instead of dying on Earth. The end. Hey, let's make a series out of this. Okay, so, yes, you probably picked up on it. These two shows, conceived separately, broadcast on different continents, they're kind of telling the same story. No no joke about Dr. Mary Smith's mind control spa. It seems like there was something in the water in 1977. Okay, so is someone or something following Mark during his dive just after the opening credits? Because whatever it is, we never see it. Even in the scene where Mark climbs out of the water, back into the cetacean, he's carrying a sample bag and nothing else. No one seems concerned about retrieving whatever it is that not only provides a clear view of Mark while he's underwater, but allows the crew to communicate with him. I'm sorry, it's 1977. We didn't have portable phones with cameras that record video, so we've got some kind of magic waterproof technology here, and it just nags at me and fritters away at the edges of the credibility of it all. And that element would continue to be used all the time in the series in the fall of 1977 which we'll get back to at some point. I'm kind of bothered by the fact that the only people of color we see in this movie are menacing tough guy guards with no lines whatsoever. They're just there to be threatening. Okay, there's... To be fair, some of the tough guy guards are white or perhaps Latino. There's one African-American man among the people lounging in the mind control spa Presumably he might be one of the kidnapped scientists, but the rest are there to just be bemuscled menaces. These are the guys watching Elizabeth at the dock. They're the guys forcing Elizabeth and Mark into the spa, and it's just super cringy. I know it's 1977, but could the FBI guy or the police lieutenant have been not white? I'm calling a casting fail here. I'm not even going to try to find some story justification for it, like saying, oh, well, this is indicative of how Dr. Smith sees her perfect new human society playing out. Even in 1977, the casting director on a network TV show should have had better ideas than to have mute black extras showing up just to threaten the otherwise exclusively white good guys. That is not cool. Not in 1977. Sure as hell not in 2021. When I got to the end credits and saw these mute performers listed as the Minions, one of them was Ernie Hudson, an actor whose work I love. Ernie Hudson, who played Winston in Ghostbusters. This is how you're going to put a talent like that to use? Seriously, don't give me this young actor paying his dues crap. I, uh, I can't even. Some dues aren't worth it. Now, we're an hour and four minutes into this hour and ten minute movie before we see any indication of surveillance cameras on the island or in Dr. Smith's secret underground lair, but until we see that one indication, everyone, especially Mark, sneaks about freely. But we're at minute 64 and suddenly there are cameras everywhere. Elizabeth and Miller get to watch Mark confronting Dr. Smith in the rocket room. Once those cameras are part of the plot, this whole thing just falls apart. None of them should have been able to sneak around anywhere, you know, including putting a counteracting agent in the water supply. 
Now, worse yet, the under <laughs> the undersea rocket launch. You notice how the editor cuts away from what should be the big special effects beauty shot for this whole movie. I have a feeling that uh, that was considered a mercy because what we did get to see looked uh, kind of Thunderbirds. Actually, it didn't look as good as Thunderbirds. I think that may have been the problem. The credits say Jerry Saul, writer of such Star Trek episodes as the Corbomite Maneuver, and also contributor of scripts to shows such as The Outer Limits, The Twilight Zone, and The Invaders, came up with the story. I can't help but think that he probably should have written the teleplay as well, and it wouldn't have been as much of a mess. You wouldn't have had the surveillance system that simply didn't exist until six minutes before the end of the movie, and then suddenly existed everywhere. There are the germs of some really neat ideas here, the ecological conceits, such as the rate at which humanity is chewing through raw resources wastefully without expending equal effort on finding alternatives. And whether or not the human race is destroying its own planet is inevitable. Those are some big ideas. They deserve some exposure. There are lots of thought-provoking things going on that proceed to get dropped so we can, you know, put Alternative 3 into action and send an arc to another planet. And here's the thing. Dr. Mary Smith is no Mr. Schubert. As Mr. Schubert, Victor Buono put a really magnetic performance forward to demonstrate how unhinged his character was. Dr. Smith is just kind of one note. She's really arch all the way through. There's a TV interview with TV's Patrick Duffy, star of Man from Atlantis, from around the time that the movie Aquaman came out, and I've included it on the show page at thelogbook.com slash retrogram for this episode of the podcast, where he talks about the weekly series that followed the four Man from Atlantis TV movies. There is a comment he makes that Man from Atlantis had a fascinating premise that seemed to be abandoned fairly quickly. That comment of his really stuck with me. I He played Mark Harris in the show, he was in every movie, he was in every episode, the camera was on him more than any other character. You have to accord that opinion some weight. And I think that that abandonment of the original premise starts here, or perhaps even in the previous movie. At least the second movie was still dealing with the mystery of where Mark came from, and whether or not there were other people who were still alive in that same place. Patrick Duffy's right on the money. There was a point where Mark just seemed to stop worrying about his origins. Everyone else stopped worrying about Mark's origins. And then he's just at the beck and call of the human race, or at least the foundation for oceanic research, just to go stop Schubert, or whoever, from pulling off schemes so nutty that they would make Bond villains hang their heads in shame. This is the weakest of the four Man from Atlantis movies of the week, and while the weekly series that appeared later in the fall of 77 would start from a better footing than this movie's plotline, it too would drift off course over time, which is disappointing. This was such a neat idea, Man from Atlantis was. And don't just take my word for it, because Patrick Duffy went back and wrote a novel picking up the threads that the story dropped on TV. And Duffy really made something interesting out of a blank slate character while he was on camera for this. The fact that I still talk fondly about Man from Atlantis today, despite the handful of ham-fisted stories like this one that sank it, indicates that this was a show that ignited some imaginations way back when, including that of its nominal star. Nominal. Oh, hey, Nominal Bot. 
When this was its last stop before getting a series order, it's kind of amazing that there would be a series in the future to be so fond of. We will return to 1977 in upcoming installments of Retrogram, not immediately, but we will be back, because remember that I said that this coverage of the genre TV offerings during the summer months of that year were the middle part of a trilogy. Like someone else who came to sci-fi prominence in 1977, our next stop when we return to 77 is the first part of that trilogy, and then at some point we'll jump to the third part and see how crazy we can get. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. The theme from Man from Atlantis was composed by Fred Carlin. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to thelogbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you love Retrogram, become one of them. Every little bit helps keep thelogbook.com and its podcasts and now pretty frequent videocasts going. You can be like Philip, Kevin, Ferg, Darwin, Cindy, Paul, Mark, Charles, and Ashley and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash thelogbook. If monthly contributions aren't your thing, we totally get that too. You can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash thelogbook as well. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, other clothing and household goods, and even face masks and more from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com with designs featuring everything from classic Odyssey 2 games to classic space missions, which did really happen, to, hey, you guessed it, hashtag floaty robot buddies. You can order all sorts of things from Amazon and eBay through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store. And if you like watching stuff, feel free to sign up for Paramount Plus or Hulu through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps The Logbook and Retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. <laughs>